Folks, this is Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 21st, 2024th, by the way, that was not 24th, whatever that is, 24th, 2013, and this is episode 1117, 1117 of the Survival Podcast. It's also episode two. Wait a minute. Didn't we hear this before? That's right. We're doing the Women of Prepping series, and this is episode two in that. I've got a great one for you guys today. I've got Jen Fowler,、uh, also known as Frugal Upstate. She's got a great blog. She's been around a long time, since 2006.、Uh, so her blog actually predates the Survival Podcast. She did some podcasting of her own for a while, but hadn't been doing that for a, quite a while, a couple of years.、Um, but she's a great gal. Uh, she was a United States Army logistics officer,、uh, for 11 years. And,、uh, after that, she,、uh, moved with her husband to,、uh, upstate New York. And,、uh, they live there now and she blogs and homesteads and talks to folks all the time about how they can save money and be more prepared. And she what am I saying here? Practices.、Uh, see, I don't edit this stuff. I know you guys think I do. I don't.、Uh, she practices what she calls subversive sub- prepping. Wow. I'm telling you today. I don't know, guys. It's been a rough week. Give me a break. Anyway, I'll have her on in just a moment. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and、uh, take care of our sponsors. See if I can pronounce their names correctly. One guy's name that I always get right is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, it might shock you to realize that he sells Berkey water filtration systems. I'm not even going to tell you that you should buy a Berkey. I think that if you're researching ways to keep your water clean for the most affordable way possible, the most reliable way possible, something with no moving parts, something that looks great in your home, you know you want a Berkey. But why get it from the Berkey guy? What are you going to do? Go get it from the non-Berkey guy? The non-Berkey guy at the gun show that sells,、uh, old surplus magazines and Berkeys? Are you going to get it from the Berkey guy? The number one dealer there is out there in, for Berkey. They can always take care of you and always make sure that you're taken care of properly. The guy that's been keeping this very hard to keep happy audience happy for a very long time. The guy that's so obsessed that when I put him on a discussion panel, he was doing customer service on his, on his tablet in the middle of that discussion panel. That's the guy you want to deal with, not the non-Berkey guy. Check him out today. His website is directive21.com. Again, directive, the number 21.com. And he has other cool stuff besides Berkey's. How about Mountain House stuff? And he's got 10% off for all MSB members on the Mountain House stuff. And he's got some cool stuff on the Berkey side for MSB members too. If you're going to deal with the Berkey guy this week or any day, if you're an MSB member, make sure you check your benefits section first. Next up today, Jam Bullion. JM Bullion is a company that when I needed a new company to sell silver and gold,、uh, to bring in as a sponsor, I went out and found one.、Um, I went out and looked at a lot of the bigger companies and I was like, I want to talk to the owner. And they're like, yeah, well, screw off. You don't get to talk to the owner here. We, we have lots of owners. We don't have one owner. We're, we're big. We don't do that. And who the hell are you? Some survival guy. Get out of here. And that's not exactly how it was put to me, but it's kind of how it was put to me. Like, you're not important enough to talk to our owner. I went to JM Bullion. I was talking directly to the owner right from the beginning. I said, well, how does this pricing compare? I don't mind pricing being a little bit higher to deal with a small person, but then I look at JM's pricing and it's better than like Monex and Atmex. And I'm like, wow. So I can talk to the owner. I know I can get things corrected for the audience if something goes wrong. Been in business a long time,、uh, and that personal level of service 
and great pricing, yeah, this is who I want as a sponsor. Made the offer. They accepted it. When you need to buy generic silver rounds, American silver eagles, pre-64 coins, generic silver bars, that kind of stuff, JM Bullion should be your go-to source. Large orders, there's also a discount for MSB members. It's not a huge discount, but if you knew the margins we work on with silver and gold, you'd understand why. Um, I also want to point something out. Somebody recently said, they ripped me off. Please define ripped you off before I get all you know, cracking skulls for you. I ordered a large order and the discount code didn't work. Did you contact them? No. Okay, how about this? How about you contact them and give them, give them a chance to figure out what computer glitch caused it to not work before you say that. And, of course, what happened, they took care of it, and I think they gave the guy like an extra coin or something like that when he was kind of being unreasonable. I, I bring that up now not just to talk about how great Jam Bullion is, but to, to please ask you to do this for me. Some of you guys have had issues with sponsors, uh, reasonable issues. You've brought them to me, and I've... Made it right. I fixed it. And I, I will tell any sponsor on the show, if you don't take, you know, what I consider reasonable and good care of my customers, I will fire you as a sponsor. That's why you trust me. But please give them, I mean, stuff breaks. Things fall apart. Things go into spam filters. Please pick the phone up and call these folks or send them an email to customer support. Give them a chance to fix an error before you go narking them out to the teacher. That's basically what I found. And it's not a lot. It's, it, and please, if it's a real problem, you've tried to rectify it and they didn't do it for you, yeah, bring that to me. And please do me one more favor. If you have a problem, With our service or any sponsor service, don't wait six months to tell us. We've had people join the MSB, send us a check. Uh, they didn't write legibly or whatever, and we got their email wrong when we entered their information, and they don't tell us that they never got a welcome email for like four months. And we feel bad about it. We usually actually give them the time back, but we can't fix it. So if you guys send in you know, a check or silver or something like that, expect it to take around seven working days, depending on when we pick up our mail runs and stuff like that. And if you don't hear from us uh, by then with a welcome email, let me know, and uh, Dorothy will research and get you squared away. If we don't know there's a problem, we can't fix it. That's That's the same for my sponsors. It's kind of a little extra public service announcement today. Just to let you know, we, got, we guys, we really care. And we really work hard here for you guys. Um, but we can only fix what we know about. Uh, that includes my mint, too, man. Um, I have cracked some skulls over there. Um, and I think it was warranted. And I think I squared away the problem. And I'm going to tell you guys, like, next week, I'm going down there. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to take a video camera with me. And I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to talk to Rob and his people on camera. And unless they listen to the show, they don't even know that's going to happen. And I'm going to make damn sure that that stuff's squared away before we come out with the next silver coin. That's just what we do around here. We, don't, we do not jack around with the trust of our audience. But again, if there's a problem, we need to know about it so we can fix it. And if a sponsor has made an error, please give them the courtesy of, uh, of asking them to, uh, to fix it for you. Oh, also, MSB members, here's one more little pet peeve. If you decide you don't want to be an MSB member anymore and you forget about your auto renewal in PayPal and it comes up for auto renewal, email me and ask me to give you a refund. Don't report me for unauthorized charges in PayPal because I'll fight it, I'll win it, and then I'll give you the refund anyway. But you'll wait like 30 days to get your money back or I'll do it like in 30 minutes from the time I read the email If you just ask, I consider it kind of rude and obnoxious, so I'm a little rude and obnoxious back. I always give the refund, but I always contest the so-called unauthorized charge. I always win, and that takes like 30 days for that to happen, and I do that. I don't really do that to be a jerk, guys. You know why I do it? Because I have a stellar reputation with PayPal. I have a reputation with PayPal where... Most sellers in PayPal have some part of the money that comes in held for a period of time. I've been so 
on it with those guys and taking care of people so well for so long, I don't even have that anymore. They don't have any controls or holds on my account, and I want to keep it that way. Uh, it makes it easier for me to like do things like give refunds when I need to fast. Um, and if, if I let people make those accusations against me, it risks my reputation. So I know I went long. I'm sorry. Let's, uh, let's with that go ahead and just get into the main topic of today's show and, uh, we'll skip any other house cleaning that got left out. All right. Now, like I said, it's, uh, my good fortune to, uh, introduce Jen Fowler, also known as Frugal Upstate. You've probably seen her commenting on our blog often. She's an awesome person. She's been in the, she was in the Army, been in, was in the Army for an 11 year career, uh, mainly as a logistics officer. Uh, she traded her combat boots for tennis shoes and began to stay at home, become a stay at home mom in upstate New York. Uh, she's combined her love of writing with her love of saving money and created the Fugal Upstate blog, where she helps teach people how to use what you have, get creative and save, and practices survasive prepping. And with that, hey Jen, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi Jack, thanks for having me. Hey, you are uh, batter two, I guess, in our series, uh, Women of Prepping. So you're the, the second person to bring on for this. And I was really excited when I saw your uh, your request to be on the show come across, because I've seen you on our site commenting a lot. I've seen your blog a lot and a lot of other stuff you're doing. So I'm glad you're here today, and thanks for taking time out of uh, your day to be with us on the show. Well, great. I'm really looking forward to talking. See what we come up with. Well, you know, remember how this all started? I got like this barrage of emails from women. They're like, why don't you have more women on? Why don't you talk about it from a, I don't know, I'm a guy and I bring people on the show that, you know, as they show up. Um, and I said, come on, ladies, come on the show. And a bunch of you guys uh, responded. And so kind of my first question really for everybody is, as a woman, what do you think makes it different or harder? Because it may not be harder. It may just be different to be a prepper when you're a woman versus a, a man. Well, I think women have a very different viewpoint of prepping and what their, I guess, position in life is than men. Women tend to be the caregivers in the family, and their viewpoint tends to be caring for the actual physical needs of the entire family. You know, the wife or the, or the mother is who takes care of the meals and the shopping. They take care of the child issues, the education, you know, um, household training. You know, usually it's the mom who is responsible for kind of bringing the kids up into doing chores and all of that stuff. And not only your immediate family, but the women tend to be responsible for the extended family as well, which can include elder care eventually, or um, that's not a position I'm in yet, but elder care, care for cousins and things with brothers and sisters and extended family. So I think the woman tends to come in with more of a holistic view of the prepping situation and tends to concentrate when thinking about how to deal with future uncertainty with things that have to do with the health, welfare, and comfort of the family unit, as opposed to men seem to go straight into the security, uh, maybe the financial end of it. So I think that's kind of a different perspective as a woman. I completely agree with that, uh, at least on a lot of levels. My, my question then always is, then why is it so daggone hard at times to get women on board with prepping? Because to me, the, the male prepper should be outnumbered about three to one because of everything you just said. It's the woman that takes care of the kids. It's the woman that worries about the house. It's the, you know, far more than men tend to do. Uh, men are the, you know, kind of the, the, the ego driven. As long as I keep a roof over your head and food on the table, I'm doing my job. But women are this constant caregiver thing. So, with that being the case, do you think maybe the reason is because they're so emotionally attached to everything they care for, they have a hard time just accepting that something bad could happen? I think that's part of it for some people. Of course, I can only speak 
definitively for myself, but uh, my, my undergrad degree was an extremely useful degree in psychology, so I do like to tend to look at the whole situation and how people are thinking about things. So I think that part of it is that. Part of it is people not wanting to think about, you know, if you are concentrating on your children, you don't want to think about the fact that life might be pretty terrible for them. Um, you don't want to think about the fact that things are going to change in a negative way. But I think also part of it can be that the women tend to be consumed with the present day. There's a lot going on. And, you know, I know there are many households out there where things are shared equally. And there are households out there where the, the male partner takes the lead. But in a lot of cases, you still have a very traditional family where uh, despite the fact that both family members might be working, a lot of times it's the mother that's still responsible for a lot of the child care, a lot of the trucking kids around, a lot of the scheduling. And I think it's very easy to be consumed with the day-to-day and maybe not take the time to research and think about and learn about the fact that there might be problems coming up in the future. I think people, um, you know, it's that normalcy bias that they want things to continue the way they've always been and, and they might not be as involved as far as looking at the economics or the political realities as um, sometimes their male counterparts are. Uh, maybe that's why we have this thing called the family unit, and we have a balance there of male and female energy. I think that's true. I mean, I know there are times when I think I calm my husband down and talk him out of some things, and there are a lot of times that he uh, grounds me and keeps me from taking on too much or or sort of uh, uh, getting too into a project that maybe needs to be left until later. So we're a good balance. Cool. So how did you get involved with prepping? I mean, I've looked at your blog and your YouTube channel and all, and you're pretty dead gone involved at this point. Uh, how did this all start, though? Was this like, you know, is, is it something like me where you grew up in a family that did it and just kind of came back around to it? Or was there a, a seminal moment or, or what? Well, there was a little of both. Uh, I grew up in the state of Maine, which has a very, even though my parents were both from actually down near the city originally. My mom was from Long Island. My dad was from the city. And they did the whole 70s. Let's, you know, move to the sticks thing. And we moved to a small town in Maine, and I grew up in a very, that whole Yankee mentality of, you know, you kind of buckle down, you do it yourself, take care of things. I was one of five kids, and uh, even though we were we were fairly well off, we lived in the sticks, so it was like half an hour, 45 minutes to the grocery store. So we went shopping once every month and picked up everything for five kids, seven people in the family. Embarrassed the heck out of my one sister being in the grocery store with three carts. So I'm like, I don't know, I thought it was pretty cool. But we, so we had stuff on hand, and and growing up in Maine in, in the 80s, I mean, you and I are about the same age. You know, there were still a lot of storms. People's power would go out. You know, we were on a well. You'd be without water. Tip, I thought everybody knew this, so let me give a quick tip to some of your readers on wells. <laughs> My mom always made us fill the washing machine up with water if she thought a storm was coming and the power was going to go out. And I thought that was something everybody knew to do because, you know, your washing machine holds water and it's pretty large and you can use it for washing or flushing the toilet. And it's amazing the number of people I've mentioned that to that have Never thought of that little uh, little receptacle for water, I guess. So, But, you know, we grew up with all of that. And, um, you know, I always kind of had a self-sufficient mind. I uh, loved the little House in the Prairie books and reading about how they did things and Robinson Crusoe and being, you know, Swiss Family Robinson being stranded on that island and all the things they made themselves. So, you know, there was always a little bit of that mindset to me. And um, my husband and I were both in the service and when we decided to leave the service, he retired, and I left after 11 years. And we knew we were going to go from one in- from two nice officer incomes to one state employee income. I started getting interested in frugality and trying to save money and trying to you know live well on what we had, even though we were basically cutting our income in half. So I found that 
sort of frugality leads to sustainability and eventually sustainability leads to prepping. And in that mix there, I wound up um, taking on my blog and becoming a blogger. And a couple of years ago, some bloggers I really respected, one of them was like, hey, you know, I'm in this private Skype group with a lot of people who are talking about prepping. Would you be interested? And at that point, I hadn't really looked into prepping very much, but I was like, okay, sure. And I got in there and some actually fairly big names in blogging in the mom blogosphere were in there and we were talking and I started learning from them. I one of them turned me on to your podcast. I started listening and I started really um, seeing that this was, it tied into so many of the things that I already felt and gave it a name and gave me more information. And then along the way, I found out that my brother was also prepping. So we started our own little family prepping uh, support group and it sort of went from there. I, I think it's kind of interesting that it actually was my outside community and actually an online community that sort of really brought me into the actual prepping though. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that in a lot of places for people today that a, a lot of people in the past, and it wouldn't just prepping, it'd be all different types of communities, that the mm -hmm. online world has completely and totally changed the feeling that you might be the only one out there forever. And I think it then it translates into the offline world because as soon as you figure out, well, there's a hell of a lot more people than me that like prepping or trains or whatever – then you start to realize, yeah, maybe it's okay to talk about this to other people. Maybe I'm not weird. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm glad it's finally at the point where I don't have to explain what a blog is every time somebody asks me what I do for a living. <laughs> yeah, we're not quite there with podcasting yet. I, I'd say it's about, I'd say seven out of ten people are like, so what's a podcast? Uh, <laughs> that generally followed by, and how does that work as a business? Oh, yeah. yeah. It must be nice to get to stay home all day. I love yeah. that one. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see you bumping into me at 3 a.m. when I started this thing out and had to get up that early to work on it before I went to work. Mm -hmm. um, that's my response <laughs> to that one. But, yeah. um, you know, when you started doing all this stuff, uh, you know, your husband's from a military background, as, as I am as well. I think military people come to this a little bit easier than others. So when you started this, was he already kind of into this mode? Or if not, how would you kind of get him to go along with it? Well... My husband actually tuned into the, the economic and the political issues before I did. Okay. So, as he said once, I was paying attention to all this two years ago. <laughs> so well, that he, sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, but the problem was is he, he didn't really take the next step. Again, you get into that difference between he's very into, you know, keeping an eye on the politics and what's going on. Um, he gets very, you know, we both get very keyed up over certain issues and things like that. But taking that next step to okay, now what are we going to do about it? You know, he is more likely, he'd be more likely to be the guy who would be writing letters to the editor and getting involved in, a, in supporting certain, you know, causes or things like that. Whereas the whole, well, let's put some more food in the basement really wasn't sort of on his radar. Luckily, we both have a very similar background and luckily for our marriage as well. We have a very similar socioeconomic background, religious beliefs, a lot of our, our political beliefs line up. And all of that makes us a very strong team and a unit. So we have, we're not in debt. Um, we've always been, you know, we, we've always lived well, but we've, we've lived within our means. So we didn't have a lot of those issues that I see when I, when I go on, especially the forum and see people who have problems a lot of times that not only is there the problem with the prepping, but there's a, a financial problem there where their viewpoints on what to spend money on or how to spend money are um, really at odds. And that, exacerbates the whole thing. You know, when you're already, <laughs> when you already got one partner who's 
putting you into debt and the other one doesn't want to be doing that. And then you add all this other stuff on top of it. You really got some tension points um, with us. At first, I think he thought it was just kind of a um, actually at first I didn't tell him. I just started buying more groceries and putting them in the basement. Okay. <laughs> but as I went along, I mean, he obviously noticed and, um, you know, went from being a deep fan- pantry to actually being having, you know, stuff on hand. And we started talking about it more and he's been, he's been very supportive um, of a lot of the things, but he's, I'm still the one who's sort of in the lead. I'm the one who does a lot of this stuff. You know, he's more than happy to, to be a strong back for the garden, but it's really my garden, you know, all yeah. four of them. I managed to fit four gardens onto half an acre. Um, same thing. He's more than happy. You know, he bought me, a, he bought me a lovely little 38 special, uh, revolver for my for Christmas a couple of years ago and was very supportive of, you know, we go up and we shoot on our friend's property and, and uh, just actually uh, a couple of days ago, our 12 year old, she wanted to get her, she wanted to get her um, hunter safety course and get her hunting license and go hunting with Papa. So she got a, a nice little uh, Mossberg Bantam for her birthday and shot it for the first time on Sunday up on the property and had a lot of fun with that. But he's not as much into, um, he's not as much into some of the um, planning portion. You know, when we start getting into, well, what do you think it's going to look like and what should we do in order to try to be prepared for that? I think that it's difficult. You know, um, my husband's 10 years older than I am, so he's 51 this year. And, you know, if things had gone along the way they were and the economy had been a stable thing, then he'd be looking at getting to retire soon. And, I don't think that's going to happen now. I mean, he's already retired once from the military, but you know what I mean. He's going to yeah. retire. And he's a state employee. And um, luckily in a, luckily or unluckily, however you want to look at it, he's in a federally funded position. So at least the state can't decide to cross, you know, get rid of that position in order to save money um, for right now. And mm-hmm. he's doing a job he likes. He's, he's actually a, um, an employment rep for veterans. He helps veterans, specifically disabled veterans, find jobs. Great job. Um, for the for being able to help people, but you know, I think it's harder. Uh, you know, when you're the man, as you well know, and you still feel responsible for the financial future of your family, and that's a hard thing to deal with when you don't think that future is going to be stable, and you don't think that your children are going to be able to have the same lifestyle that you had growing up. Yeah, I think there's a big fear in that for a lot of people, and not because it's just a fear. I think that there's a lot of logic behind it. It's something I've referred to as downward class migration, where if we look at it today, even the people that are officially called solid in the middle class do not have the lifestyle quotient that people did 30 years ago that were solidly in the the income level for the middle class, even with inflation adjustment and all of those things. I think you're 100% right on that. So you were you were a woman in the military in the 90s. It's kind of interesting because I was served from 89 to 93, so I don't know if we overlap there at uh, all. I, I was commissioned in 94, but I was an ordinance officer, so I could have been your boss. You could have been. You could have been. You just weren't because I was gone. I know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, did that really influence your ideas, ideas of prepping and how people would behave in a difficult situation? I know that 
for the rest of my life, I'll remember places like Honduras, um, like Costa Rica during an earth, earthquake relief effort, uh, and, and being various other overseas places. And, you know, thinking about how people here can live off garbage if they have to, and there's places where there ain't no garbage you can live off because nobody throws away anything that's, you know, usable. So how did that time affect the way you view things as a prepper? Well, I think the military in general affects you because there are certain skills you learn, like how to plan. Um, you know, I think that I kind of make little operation orders in my head all the time when I'm looking at a problem. You know, what are your situation? What what are you trying to accomplish? What kind of resources do you have on hand? You kind of are trained to run through that process, whether you realize you're doing it or not. But even more than that, in my 11 years in the Army, um, two of the experiences I think that most affected my prepping was, number one, I was part of the initial force that moved into Bosnia. So okay. um, I was part of I-4. You know, when we moved in, there was nothing there. And that was quite an experience. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a lieutenant with a platoon. I ran a supply parts warehouse for the, for the um, maintenance support brigade, had a, you know, um, four brigades that we supported. And it was, a, it was a big job. We had constant operations. And we moved. We deployed into Bosnia with nothing there and moved into a strip mine. And I spent nine months living in a strip mine. <laughs> so it was started out, I mean, literally when we got there, there were no latrine facilities. There were no shower facilities. Um, we were living in our tents. Um, later on, all the services started coming in. But you know, at the beginning, we had problems that I think some preppers don't think of, like, how do you dispose of human waste? Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, we, I was happy to be a lieutenant and not a private when it came to Having somebody stand there and stir, you know, stir diesel fuel into stuff that you needed to burn so that it would continue to burn. Um, yeah, I was happy to be in Honduras when we had to do that because there were people that would do it for a dollar an hour. <laughs> and and basically, that was one of the few times I saw any kind of democracy. And it was like, well, if everybody will chip in and man, wallets opened. Mm-hmm. It was like, then we ain't doing that. <laughs> it's not the most fun task, but no. you know, it was, it was very interesting because a lot of people have never been in a situation. I mean, you go camping, but that's a choice. It's different being in a situation where, you know, once a week, everybody can load the Humvees and go down to the, to the showers that the miners let us use that are really a spigot, like from a hose suspended from the ceiling, a stream of water coming down group showers. And that's it once a week, you know, that sounds familiar too. Yeah. And so, uh, and of course, you know, we were the support brigade. We have supplies. So I managed to, um, my, actually it was my sergeant. He was, uh, we had pallet, camp shower, one of those big silver um, bullet coffee pots because we had generators. So you'd plug that silver bullet in and you'd heat it up to boiling and then you'd mix it with the water from the other thing. You'd fill up the camp shower. We had a curtain and our troops could take showers a little more frequently that way. But it was a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, what I learned from my time was if you're going to go to a, a long-term field deployment, go with the engineers. Because um, if they don't have it, they'll build it. That, that's true. But see, I have you one better because I had the supply parts warehouse. People wanted to do me favors. There you go. And I had uh, had some guys who needed my forklifts. We had the 10-ton forklifts. Yep. I had this one little girl who she could drive that thing. Man, she was awesome. Private Browning. And she took and she was doing some stuff for the um, the engineers. And they said, well, is there anything you need? And I said, well, I got these, these four mill vans and it's really hard going up and down the little stairs to get into the porch. We'd love to build like a porch in front of it. So they built me this nice porch with a railing and steps coming down that all four of them backed up to. And then I got yelled at by my battalion commander because I got ahead of about 10 other people's jobs. 
Yeah, yeah, but that's there's a lesson there about barter and community and things like that in a downgrid situation too, though. There is well, and there was one of the supply sergeants who would come. We had the repair parts across the camp where the other all the other classes of supply, and there was this one guy from the one battalion. I can see his face. Can't remember his name anymore, but he was the guy who could get you anything. When we were living on tea rats. He could get you fresh eggs. I don't know who he knew locally, who he made friends with. He got me a birthday cake in Bosnia. Wow. My soldiers. I have no idea where he got it from. And right now I can't remember what I did for him, but I'm sure I did something. But, yeah, he. there's always that guy. There's always yeah, there's guy. always people that figure things out. One of the things that happened in Korea was there were some rations where the, some of the the Koreans themselves were able to get from from the U.S. military uh, five gallons of gas a week or something like that. So they would bring their five gallon can in. Well, what they figured out to do was fill the, the these you know plastic cans, not the jerry cans like the military uses. They would fill the can with water and put it out in the cold night, let it freeze, and then put it out in the sun during the day and let it defrost, and then have that can filled up. Well, it would expand, and they would get about a quarter of a gallon extra in a can just by stretching it. Um, it's, it's amazing what people figure out when they're in a situation where it really matters. It is. But back to the experience, I learned a lot of other things there that um, I think are very useful in my prepping mentality. One of the things, I learned the importance of little luxuries. When you are out there, we, we used to call it Groundhog Day because you're working seven days a week, you know, all yeah, day long. And it's Groundhog Day. It was the same day over and over. And there wasn't really much to break up the day, um, especially early on before we got our little mini PX and the, eventually we got a little Burger King cart. But um, so the little luxuries, I mean, if somebody got a package from home with some chocolate and some cheese whiz in it, everybody was excited, you know. Um, as a woman, you know, things like using a nice smelling soap, you know, uh, you're little it it's amazing what little things can brighten up your day and give you a little comfort when every day is the same and i think that taking that to prepping it's it's important and i think sometimes guys forget this the little luxuries can matter things like i know you've talked about storing up you know some some comfort foods and some chocolates or nuts or whatever you know is is your little specialty food but it, little food luxuries a couple of nice things whether it's like i said for the for the women in your life nice selling smelling soaps or other items. Everybody has what their little luxuries are. I had one, I had one sergeant, his wife would send him RC Cola into Bosnia because that was his favorite brand. And of course you couldn't get it, you know, so whatever those luxuries are, don't forget those in your preps because having some of those things on, especially think down to your children who might have less prep um, coping mechanisms, that having those little things can be very important. Um, I found that people, you can do what has to be done. If you have the right, right mindset, when you have to, I think most people can do more than they think they can. And that's something that I really did learn in the military that, you know, it might seem too tough, but a lot of times it's not. If you buckle down and say to yourself, I can do this, you can do a lot more than you think. No, I mean, because I've, I've been mocked for I, when I first started, there was an article done on me in Details Magazine, and they said, what are some of the things that you keep that maybe preppers wouldn't? I'm like, I have a lot of coffee, and I mean good, high-quality Starbucks and other small you know, coffee, and I don't care if they say on the site that you have to use green coffee. Coffee stores great if it's vacuum-sealed for a long time. I got Argentinian Malbec. I've got some really good hard cheeses. And you might mock me, but if I'm sitting there sipping an Argentinian Malbec and, and eating a cottage, uh, you know, a, 
uh, an artesian cheese in the middle of the apocalypse, I might feel a little bit better about it. I might not feel great about it, but I might feel a little bit better about it. It might it might make you have a little bit better of an outlook. That is true. And, and I wonder what a bottle of Malbec is worth in a situation where we, you know, have that long term effect if it ever happens. It might actually get a few things done for you. I mean, I've I've seen things get done for a case of beer that uh, that would normally cost a lot of money, but a case of beer, you know, during a hurricane uh, aftermath, you give a guy a case of beer and he's got a chainsaw, you got a clear driveway. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I think that's very true, and I think that. You'll, you'll never know exactly what the right things to store for that kind of a barter situation are, but there are some classics. You know, alcohol's a classic, cigarettes are a classic. Um, chocolate. chocolate. I mean, even, that even makes a big appearance in 1984, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey. The chocolate ration has been increased. You've done well, workers. I mean, yeah. that's, and I mean, there is a certain thing there. Now, one of the things that I saw in your notes was a term called servasive prepping. Subversive prepping. Yeah, subversive prepping. What, what's up with that? Well, I'm a big believer in the fact that you can't go at certain things straight on. Um, you know, a lot of there are a lot of topics out there that if you try to talk to people straight on, they get they get their hackles up. But if you come at it kind of sideways, it's a lot easier to change minds, get things done make things happen the way that you think they should happen. And so I think there's a lot of things that I'm kind of subversively doing. Um, I, I have subversive things I do with my family. I have subversive things I do with my friends. I have some subversive things I do on my blog. Um, for example, with the family. You know, there's a lot of things I do that I do for prepping reasons, but that the kids have absolutely no idea that's why we're doing it. You know, when when my daughter, who we call princess on my blog for a slight bit of anonymity. Okay. Uh, you know, when, when she's, you know, when, when we took her up to land to practice with her shotgun, you know, she just thought that's a fun day out with Papa, you know, that wasn't, you know, she, I'm not prepping. That wasn't anything to do with that, you know, but that's sort of what's going on in the back of my mind. That's a good skill for her to have. She'll enjoy it. It'll make her comfortable. We have weapons in the house, so we need her to know how to use them safely and, and to have respect for them. Um, some things I do with food and, this one kind of overlaps between my blog and my, my home life. I publish a meal plan on my blog every week, what I'm going to make for the week. And I made official goals to have one venison meal, one fish meal, one pork meal, one bean meal, one meatless meal, and one soup meal for a week um, for multiple reasons. The venison and the pork are because uh, Bill's a hunter, and we wind up with a f- freezer full of venison. And the okay. pork, I buy a half of a organic pork uh, pig every year. So I want to make sure I kind of use this up throughout the year. But And fish is just for a health reason, try to have more fish in our diet. But some of them are for prepping reasons. I added in the bean meal, the meatless meal, and the soup meal in order to um, advance my prepping. Sure. We talk about eat what you store, store what you eat. Well, I wanted to have a lot more bean recipes in my repertoire. I wanted it to be something my kids would eat. And I wanted all of those things to be things that they saw as being a supper. Now, sometimes the way I include beans in my meal is as a side dish, but sometimes beans are the main course. And by having them regularly, it's not something strange to the kids. It's something that we all know is inexpensive and stores well, and they're used to eating it. You know, same thing with the soup meal. Some people don't see soup as being a meal, and I wanted my family to see that as being a viable meal option. So... These are things that I'm doing. I think they benefit my family as far as um, today because I'm ha- making healthier meals. 
with a variety of different ingredients, but it's also partially prepping. I'm getting used to cooking with these things. I'm getting used to using less meat um, for a meatless meal, using more beans, using soup as a meal. All these things help over time to change our mindsets and to make it easier on the family. Very cool. And I think it's so important to do that. And I think that I don't know, your childhood's probably like mine. It was probably that was going on when you were a kid and you didn't know any better. I mean, uh, I was, I remember like one of the first times I went to a friend's house and uh, his mom was making dinner and she went and got green beans out of a freezer. I didn't know green beans came out of a freezer. I knew that green beans maybe came out of a freezer in a Ziploc bag, but not in a package that said bird's eye on it. I mean, I had never even seen a bird's eye bean. Um, you know, we either were either picking it or it was being canned or, you know, we did a little bit of freezing with beans. But it was just like to, to p- people today, if they come over to your house and they, you, they hear that all of the vegetables on the table came from your garden, to them it's like a big deal. Where to me that was just like, that's just how life was. Well, we had a big garden for a long time when I was a, a young child um, until my mom went back to work. But And we did. She froze most of the vegetables. We had a huge stand-up freezer, and we did a lot of shopping ahead. And we grew up in an area where a lot of people had gardens. And I'm actually very glad we, we moved back to my husband's hometown in upstate New York. And the area I live in, a lot of people still garden. A lot of people still can. A lot of people hunt. So although a lot of the younger generation, um, you see maybe isn't as familiar with those skills, it's not a strange thing. Mm-hmm. It's still part of the culture. And I, that makes me feel very confident that in a hard time, we'll have those skills as a community to rely on and a lot of people who can help teach other people what to do. Yeah, it's so. a great climate. It's, it's a great place to garden. I you know, grew up in Pennsylvania, which is just south of you. And it, it, it kind of hurts me to see that area grabbing on to so many gun control things and stuff like that because um, that kind of is counter to the culture, too. I mean, I, I'm not as familiar with New York as Pennsylvania because I never lived there. But, I mean, in Pennsylvania, we have like a million deer hunters. Oh, and yeah. it, it's hard to understand an advocate, you know, for gun control in a state with a million deer hunters. It just doesn't really – it doesn't really make sense to you, you know, and it, it is kind of hard to see that going on up there. But I do think you're right. Um, I have noticed a tremendous, every trip I've taken up there, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, back to Pennsylvania, a tremendous number of people that are still doing things the way I remember when I grew up. And I'd say more so than a lot of other parts of the country that you think of as being more prepper-centric. I think we never really lost it all the way. And, and that's a blessing, especially in the rural area. I mean, I live in a rural area. People say New York and they think the city. Sure. I swear, I swear, if we could just cut that off and chunk it in the ocean, New York would be a great state. <laughs> I, no, I agree. If you could get rid of the five boroughs in Manhattan, yeah. You'd be fine because I think just it's, you know. But, let them go, man. Let them be the 51st state or whatever, you know. I, it, it's just to, to cut that tether, I think that – I think you'd find New York to be a hell of a lot more like probably Texas than Pennsylvania oh, yeah. um, if you could get rid of that piece of it. I, uh, yes. yes. Maybe like Poughkeepsie and all that needs to go too. I don't uh, know. <laughs> but, you know I mean, we'll keep north of like Westchester County. We'll there you go. The rest of it. It'd be good. <laughs> and we have their water supply. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you could sell it to them then. That'd be good. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it, there's still a culture of that. I, I always think I grew up in New England and New York is not technically part of New England, but upstate has a lot of that same mentality. There's still a lot of 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 the do it yourself folks in the area. And I live right in the middle of dairy country. You know, we got 
people with farms, people with cows. Granted, most of them are are um, traditional. Although, two of the biggest organic yogurt companies in the country are like half an hour. Well, one of them's big, the other one's smaller. But two organic yogurt companies, half an hour from me, Chobani and Evans Yogurt, both of them, right here. Um, but still, a lot. But you know, a lot of those people. There's the ability for this area for the agriculture to change over. There's an ability in the long run to be much more self-supporting because we have farmland. We have a lot of um, different kinds of production. We have a lot of railroads. We got rivers. It's, it's we got water. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not a bad area when it comes to all that. It, it like rains there in the summer. Yes. It's amazing. Our, our problem <laughs> is too much. Yeah, yeah. Every time you mention swells, I'm thinking, yeah, we just need to use them to move the water away. <laughs> but that's the whole point with swelling. I can take swells and I can use it to retain water. I can use it to move water. I can use it to change where the water discharges. I mean, it's a it's a sculpting technique, and um, it, it's not as critical for irrigation directly. But boy, it can solve a lot of the. I can solve a problem of too much or too little, little water with the same tool with a swell. Yeah. Anyway, um, you also said you've built a prepper community on the sly. Well, so I don't know you're a military intelligence officer. I know you're an ordnance officer. What's what's going on there? Well, it, it kind of ties into the subversive prepping. There are a lot of people who are who don't know that they're part of my prepper network. <laughs> ah, I see. Um, there's there's I'm, I'm slowly finding a few more people that are preppers, and you know we're doing the secret handshake and talking about mylar and stuff like that. But uh, for as a matter of fact. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I just had the awesomest thing happen in my community, and I'm going to do my best to make sure that, that they continue to be strong. I had a shop open in my town that is a local butcher. They are specializing in locally produced meats and foods. So I am very excited about that and um, happen to know the owners who have been raising organic chickens and turkeys um, for and rabbits for a while and selling them actually down in the city and locally. And uh, so I was in their very lovely shop and I sidled up to the, the owner. I said, hey, I said, uh, I'm just wondering, are you guys really interested in the local food from a foodie perspective or are you concerned about sustainability? And his eyes lit up. And he's mm. like, you know, if this country keeps going the way it's there going, you go. and I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, how awesome is it to have a butcher shop in my little tiny town that is providing an outlet for local meat producers to sell their products to the local population? Yeah, and how- absolutely. And I think you find more and more of that as soon as you step outside of like ground zero of the urban and and, and the you know like the close in suburban landscapes, and you start talking to people, you find that that people have a different words for the same thing, but they're all seem to be much more concerned today. I would say for our future than they were even five years ago. I think so. I I've noticed it lately that there just seems to be a sort of a bubbling up of the consciousness. I know you keep saying that there's these steps and that, you know, what the eventual thing is everybody just accepts it as always sure. having been true. And I, I think some of it we're getting there. I think it's just impossible for people to completely ignore it anymore. A lot of them, that normalcy bias, they don't really want to admit how bad it is or what that means in the long term. But there's that general feeling that things aren't right and that they're not getting better no matter what the media talking heads tell us. And it's funny, I see part of this whole subversive 
prepping thing. Like one of my girlfriends who totally not a prepper, you know, she's, she's not, she has a garden, you know, but not really a prepper, but I've seen her garden's gotten a little bigger. Her husband who, um, the state of New York has this thing where, you know, they stock the, I can't remember if it's partridges or pheasants, but they'll give people the, you know, the chicks and then they'll raise them up and let them go in the wild for the hunters, you know. Probably pheasants then. Yeah. So he's been doing this for three or four years. And for the last couple of years, I'm like, huh, if he's doing that, why doesn't he raise some chickens? Then you could eat them. So, you know, some of those yeah. partridges would be breaking their necks on the way out to the woods as far as. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and, and just today, she and I took a walk and she told me, you know, we're thinking about getting some chickens. And I'm like, yes. Sure. You know, it's, it's that I think. You bring up these certain ideas. That's part of the subversive thing. You just, you can't force feed this to people. You, you know, you, a little bit here and then back off. A little bit there and then back off. And over time, mentioning things, gee, I wish I could have chickens. You know, it'd be great. And, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have the fresh eggs? And, you know, it, it's, there is a, um, a term they started rolling out in the Army. The, the second job I had in the Army that was really gave me a lot of insight on people is I was an AIT training company commander. So oh, I that's had, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and they were the they were the missile maintenance guys. So some of them were there a really long time. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I had like a a forty two week AIT. Those people Gross. had a, their spouses along. It was not fun from the administrative portion. But you know, I, I saw all these. You know, we were we were trained. Just real quick, because I just realized something. We got two military people talking here. For those that were never in the military, AIT is like your tech school after basic. So you go in to be a mechanic or a missile repair uh, specialist or whatever. You get done with basic, then you go to an AIT company where you get your schooling. So that that's what Jen was talking about. I'm sorry, I just realized that there's people going to AI what. <laughs> you know, so there, go I ahead. Know. I'm sorry to disrupt you there. Not a problem. The, the basics is these people have been in the army for nine weeks by the time they would hit my company. So I had drill sergeants and everything. It was it was a good job. But one of the phrases at that time, they had this core army values had just come out. And um, as far as an actual list of values, they were making everybody memorize. And they kept talking about we have to inculcate our soldiers with these values. And I'm like, inculcate? I'm a I'm a pretty good you know, in English, and I got a great vocabulary. I wasn't quite sure what that meant, so I went and looked it up. And basically, inculcate means you repeat something over and over again until somebody accepts it as their own. Huh. Which is what we do. I mean, with my children. No, you don't take your toy from Johnny. No, you don't take a toy from Johnny. That's not your, you know, you say it yeah. over and over again until your kid goes, oh, that's the way it is, you know? Yeah. Um, we do that with anything. We hold dears for beliefs. I mean, I'm a Christian, and I believe in God, and of course, Therefore, because that is my belief, I pass that on to my children, and a lot of it is repetition. You know, I tell them about it. We talk about it, whatever. We do that with all of our beliefs. And so um, I kind of think that philosophy goes for trying to bring prepping to somebody who isn't really open to it. You are almost inculcating them with the idea. You're mentioning little things over and over again, and after a while, it goes from sounding weird to sounding normal. And it's that kind of, like I said, subversive way that I can sort of help my community and help build the people that I'm already friends with and I'm already interacting with and that I can count on as people, but that are not necessarily keyed into the idea of prepping yet and help bring them along uh, very, very slowly. <laughs> how, how does a woman prep or build community in your estimation differently than a man? I mean, we have this subversive thing going on here, but I think that's common anymore. I think that's, we've kind of switched on to that, but are there some other things that maybe you think a woman does a little bit differently? Well, I think women tend to be uh, more social in general. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in many relationships, the woman is sort of the cruise director for the family, you know. Yep. They're the one who plans the activities and uh, says, hey, we haven't gotten together with, you know, Joe and Sally for a while. Let's have them over for dinner. So it's already part of 
most dynamics that the woman is the one who is building the community for the family. Um, the woman is also out interacting with the community if they're the one who does most of the child stuff. And again, I realize that there are some families where that's equal burden or the male takes the lead in that. But in many cases, it is the woman. And you are at all these events and you start building community by interacting socially with your peers and your and the parents of the other children. And part of that is getting to know people, making those opportunities to have conversations and to continue those relationships outside of wherever you make that initial contact. You know, you might run into somebody at a soccer game, you're standing on the sidelines, somehow you get talking and, you know, you start talking about chickens. It's up to you to take that relationship farther. And as a woman, I think we come up, we are much more likely to say something like, let's go out for coffee or why don't you guys come over to the house or maybe we can get Johnny and Susie together to play and have those opportunities to build those relationships and build that community. And I think a lot of women do it um, just naturally and not with the intent of building a community. But once you really start thinking about the fact that, okay, for me, this is where I'm going to stay. This is, this is my community and I want to build those contacts. You can do it in a much more intentional way. Um, I'm never saying to don't become friends with somebody you don't like just because they might be useful. That's disingenuous. But there's a point at which you say, hmm, who, who do I, who here is an interesting person to know and what can I do to further my opportunities to have contact with them and to build community and build a relationship with that person? Yeah, I do think in a lot of ways women are better at communicating than men, and 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 it, it can look it can look the other way around it, to, to the man, right? Because I look at it this way: let's say I'm trying to work on on my truck, and even though I'm a diesel mechanic, this is a new truck, and it's got something I ain't ever seen before, and I'm mad, and I'm like, I cannot figure out how to get this thing apart or put it back together, whatever it is. I'm gonna pick up the phone, and I'm gonna call the person that I believe has the most knowledge about trucks, specifically new trucks, that can give me a solution. In, in a similar situation, many women would call their best friend and talk about how frustrated they are. Uh, you might not because you come from this logistical background, but many mm -hmm. women would do that, and they'll feel better about it. And I think that we talked about balance in the beginning. There's a place for that component, though, and most men, we don't have time for that crap. I'm like, I need to put this thingamabob in the widget and get the truck running. And that's the and, and while I'm doing that, I don't give a damn about nothing else. That is the only thing I care about. The dog peed in the house. Clean it up. I'm fixing the truck. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm upset because my friend told I don't care. I gotta fix the truck. <laughs> and, and I think that you know, I always find myself telling my wife when she starts explaining something that happened to me after about five minutes, and I still don't know what happened. Can I please have the Reader's Digest version? Well, women do tend to like the full situation around the problem. It'd be like context. But, you know, I think that despite what you just said, I think that men feel a somewhat of a need for the rest of that context and the rest of that relationship as well. Look at the number of men who, when they're widowed or divorced, eventually wind up feeling the need to be back in a relationship again. Sure. And I think sure. a lot of that is because... I see single guys and they don't have, you know, they don't just invite people over for dinner most of the time or, you know, that, that many people feel that it with, without the spouse, without the wife, that all those social opportunities sort of dry up because they don't know how to initiate them. Yep. And yeah, I think I agree with that. And I do have a solution for women that feel like their men are always asking for the reader's digest version. 
It's not that we don't care. We just want to know, is this a big problem or not? And this is going to alter my life or not. Now, I've been waiting five minutes to find out whether or not this is something that's really going to affect us deeply or just today. And I still don't know. So if women would come to their men the same way I ask people to ask questions for my show, give me the punchline and then I'll happily listen to the context. So there's my Dr. Phil moment of the day. <laughs> it works. Trust me. How do you think I came up with the formula for the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say, too, that I think men have to remember that sometimes all women need is to vent in order to feel better yes. about, you know, to get it out. That's true. And then they're, and then they're able to go back and tackle the problem. That's and absolutely true. Frequently, uh, you're the closest one there. Let's talk about a problem, though, right? So, you, you know, generally men do lead toward the security aspect of things, mm-hmm. for guns, protection, etc. How is personal protection different from for, for women preppers than men? Because to me, it sh- that's another one. It should be completely the other way around. You look at victims of violent crime in America, and women are disproportionately victimized, and they're the least likely to kind of bone up on security. I think that's very true. Um, being having been in the military and growing up in a household where I had a father who hunted, guns never really scared me. I think there was there's some period in history right around when we were kids that popular culture started making people think guns were bad, like just mm-hmm. as objects. And I don't really understand that, uh, but there seems to be a wide swath of swath of women who, if they're not already comfortable with weapons from their upbringing, they're scared of them. They've been trained. That yeah. Absolutely. Guns are dangerous. You and, know? and so I think that a lot of them, because they are scared of them and they're not around, they're, they just, they're leery. Um, they don't want to address that portion of it. Um, never been a problem for me. I think that as far as once you get past that hurdle of, okay, I think this is something that I need. Believe it or not, the training I don't think is a problem for most people once they get out there and try it. Mm-hmm. For women, as far as like ongoing daily personal protection – and if you're dealing with, like, say, concealed carry, I think one of the biggest problems is women's clothing. Okay. It is extremely difficult to conceal carry in what most people wear. If you go out and you just, the next time you're out in a, in a public place, look at what women are wearing and, and truly look at it and say, where would I put a weapon? Most women's clothing is not designed for concealed carry. No, I would agree with that. And, and, Women are less likely to want to wear um, baggy clothing. Exactly. Your right? man, you put a big T-shirt on. It's one size too big. And if anybody thinks you're not classy, you don't care. They don't care. You're lucky I don't have food on my face. You know. What I mean, that's that's the ma- the male attitude a lot of times. Unless I'm going somewhere where I need to dress up or whatever. Exactly. You're lucky I'm, I showed up. Right. But women tend to take a lot more concern with especially the clothing appearance and and everything else. I I do think that one of the biggest solutions to that is I don't know a woman that goes anywhere without a purse. There are some great concealed carry purses out there. There are. There are. I I purchased one myself recently. Um, I'm going to say something, though, before you go for it. Please, women, do not keep your gun in a normal purse at the bottom of your purse with your keys and all your kids' stuff. and all. You need something with an access point where that gun is dedicated. You can always access it, or you might as well not have it. This is true. And you need to keep your purse on you constantly if you're carrying so, correct, it. Correct. Correct. You, <laughs> you can't, can't leave it in the chair and go to the bathroom. That's but bad. that's, you know, that's something else. I don't, you know, I mean, that doesn't happen either. Women are very protective of their purse. And to me, that's like... That's a, a, it might not be a perfect solution, but it's at least a solution. 
it is a solution and it's better than, than not having it at all. Um, I also happen to buy the, I bought the flashbang holster, which attaches to your bra. Okay. Um, so it's underneath, it's not a perfect solution. Um, I'm still trying to decide how much I like it, but it's kind of cool to know that like I got my, I've got my gun in my bra. My husband thinks it's pretty cool too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you look at most women's clothing. We don't even have pockets half the time. I don't know no, what it is. No. That they don't, they don't think men, that men need pockets and women don't. It's ridiculous. But there's another additional problem. Um, when you're specifically looking at concealed carry. And that is, we've already talked about how the women frequently are the ones who deal with all the kids' activities. Yeah. Well, you're not allowed to bring a weapon onto school grounds. So yeah. it's like, so now it's like, okay, do I park my car on the curb and walk into the school grounds? Do I park on the school grounds and leave it in the glove box and hope nobody notices? You know, do I, do I go from home, go there for that event, come back from home because I'm going to run errands and pick up my, pick up my weapon? You know, it's, it's, you have to go to a lot more gun-free zones as a woman than the it, average man does, is you what you're do. saying, which I, I think is true. I think do. That's why I don't like them. I don't think they should exist, because the last time I checked, every school shooting that's ever occurred occurred in gun-free zone, and it didn't seem to change things. I I agree with you, but sometimes you have to just deal with the situation. Oh, no, no doubt. That's, no doubt you know, you're correct. Just, I don't want to lose my I don't want to lose my license either, because... Well, you don't want to lose your freedom. It's, we're talking about a felony. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I understand. I'm just saying. I obviously the problem is the solution in some ways. We if we can ever see clear to it. Um, my thought though with personal protection, I'm not just talking about concealed carry. I'm talking about situational awareness. A can of daggone pepper spray. Like taking a self defense class. Just understanding that you're at risk. And, and uh, you know, I can't tell you how many women I've talked to, especially women that are upper middle income. With well, who would want to hurt me? Do you watch the news? You know, I mean, have you? Do you own a television set? Do you listen to the radio? Have, have you cracked a book? I, I, and it's almost like they have this bubble of naivete around them, and you're like, it is. It's the it's that same normalcy bias, and it always makes me think of. Um, I'm a science fiction fan, and so I read Douglas Adams growing up, and I always remember, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that. And there was this one scene where they land this huge spaceship right in the middle of a soccer field, and nobody sees it, and it. It's like, how are you hiding it? It's the um, um, SEP field, the what? The somebody else's problem field. You know, somebody oh. else's problems. So you can't see it. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it's kind of the same thing. Oh, that's somebody else's problem. That wouldn't happen here. I live in a nice neighborhood. That's you know? exactly what it is. Oh, that only happens in strange, weird places that I don't go. And no. I'll tell you, it's it's a terrible thing to say, but one of the things that's made it the easiest to talk about safety and security in my own community is we had a gentleman move in who's schizophrenic, off his meds, and constantly walking up and down the streets, yelling at bushes, and okay. and you know the cops know him. He hasn't done anything bad enough. He's been kicked out of every business in town. Sure. But, you know, it's just he's here. And yeah. so all of a sudden, because we have that person, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, I really prefer the kids to play in the backyard. I don't like them out playing out in the front yard unless I'm there. And, you know, uh, we lock the doors at night because you never know. I mean, he's, ah, geez, I could just see him walking up and trying the door, you know. And, and he's probably not the person you have to worry about. It's the guy that knows how to act normal, that has malicious intent, that's far more dangerous. But if that's what wakes people up, man, that's what wakes people up. They, you know, and and. That's one of those – it's a point I can use talking to people. You know, it's, you never know. The other thing I'm worried about is what happens when there's less funding for mental institutions and they're putting more of those people out on the streets. Uh, but yeah. that's a whole yeah. other problem. 
Well, right. Less funding for prisons and more of those people are on the streets. And, you know, they'll probably let the violent offender go and keep the guy they picked up for a, a, a bag of marijuana or something, too. Um, but, you know, as a mother then, I mean, you, you're a little behind me in raising the kids. You've got your kids at a younger age where yeah. this is a real concern on a daily basis, their safety and all. But both of us are probably still very concerned equally about the future for our kids because I expect my son to be here, you know, after I'm gone. So what steps are you taking to prepare your kids for a future that you think is coming? Well, I think, first of all, um, for, for the near-term future, there are certain things I'm doing. Like, you know, I'm trying to make sure my kids love video games. They like watching TV. But I'm, I try, I've always tried to limit that regardless. But we're trying to do more things together um, as a family. Like, I read to them every night. My kids are nine, 9 and 12, which normally be a little bit beyond what you would think of as the reading to your kids at bedtime age. But, for example, I started reading to them from we were reading the Hardy Boys. And to me, that's the time to unplug. But it's also that is an activity that, regardless of what happens in the future, can provide normalcy and routine and entertainment for our family. Um, I know it's a little thing, but things like that. There's a lot of other things we're doing. I talk to them about what's going on. I know different people have different viewpoints, but... We discuss a little bit. They know that I'm concerned about the economy. They know that we're concerned that things are going to be different in the future and that there might be times when people don't aren't able to get things as often as they do now, that there might be um, changes that happen. Um, so, And they'll talk about it a little bit. It was funny. I had a – my daughter came home covered in, like, red spots from a friend's sleepover, and I thought this person has, like, outdoor cats and stuff. I thought, oh, my God, she got bitten up by fleas turned out it wasn't believe it or not she had like a kind of a cold or flu that sometimes mm-hmm. gives people like a rash but at the time i thought it was like possibly she'd brought home fleas from this these outdoor cats and stuff so we flea bombed the room and you know cleaned everything I and mean, it was this whole big huge thing and my daughter looks at me and says if this was after a collapse and we couldn't get this stuff how would we take care of this <laughs> I was excellent like, i was like excellent. awesome <laughs> You know, and see, I think the the real value there is, like, she's not, like, scared. She's just asking the question. And I think that the biggest thing we can do with educating our kids toward possible disaster is the fact that it can happen. Just so that if something does happen, they're not sitting there unable to cope with the fact that it did. Because once you're in the middle of a disaster, it's kind of like being lost in the woods. Instead of running around like an idiot getting more lost, the first thing you got to do is stop think and get your bearings and sometimes there has to be like an immediate response to a critical situation but as soon as you get to a hard cover point of safety whatever it is at that point now i have to begin using my tools and doing an assessment and if i've never even considered that i could be in this condition before the lag between where i can actually start thinking and acting proactively and running around aimlessly is a lot bigger of a delta and there's a lot more opportunity to get hurt in that period of time yeah well, we talk about a lot of things, and I think the key with talking to your kids and preparing them mentally for the future is just explaining it to them in a way that they can understand. And, for example, you know, I was, I'm concerned we do have some items on hand, and I am concerned that, especially with the way the media um, likes to highlight the difference between the haves and the have-nots, that even though I don't feel I'm a, quote, have, that at some point if things are tough, people might look at me that way, and look at what you've got and say, hey, how come they have stuff and we don't, whatever. Um, so OPSEC is a, is a concern. Um, I'm not completely paranoid about it, but it is a concern. And since the kids do know, they help me put things away. They know that we have certain things on hand. 
I wanted a way to talk to them about why they shouldn't talk about it because you've had a child, you know. You can tell them six ways from Sunday, don't tell anybody about this, and they'll still but, tell their best friend. Yeah. <laughs> so, go, yeah. Immediately. Yeah. So I came up with a way to talk to them about it that I, that I think really helped. I said, okay, imagine that you were at school and you had like a hundred pieces of candy in your desk. I said, and pretend you had to go somewhere. Do you think that some of your friends might think it was okay to take a piece of candy out of your desk? They said, well, yeah, probably. I said, do you think they would think that was stealing? No, I don't think they'd think it's stealing. Well, why don't you think they would think it was stealing? Well, because there was a lot. I said, okay, uh-huh. well, well, what if you had saved up your allowance for months and you had bought all of that candy with your own money? How would you feel if all your, if your friends took candy? Oh, I don't think I'd like that. Well, what if everybody in the class just took two pieces? How much would you have left? Well, I might not have any left. Well, exactly. That's why mama doesn't want to talk about the food that we have stored. You know, it's, it's, it might look like a lot to somebody, but we're making choices now. And I talk about choices a lot. You know, we're making choices now and we are not doing certain things and we're not buying certain things so that we can have that stuff for later. And other people aren't making those choices. And, and if they see, if they know we have it, then they might feel like we've got plenty, just like you had plenty of candy and they might think it's okay to take some. And that's not what we want to do. I said, of course, we have stuff we've stored for helping our neighbors and helping our friends, because if we can, we want to help people. And that's why we have that rice and that beans and that extra stuff that we have saved. I said, but we believe that one of the best ways to distribute that would be to give it to our church and let our church hand it out. And that way people won't know who it's coming from. The church can know who needs it and they'll be able to distribute it to people. So we want to take care of our neighbors and we want to help people, but this is what we think is the best way to do that. And to do that, we don't need people to know what we have. That's some incredible advice right there. That's why we're doing the Women in Prepping uh, series for stuff like that right there. Um, we are about at the end of our hour, so I do want to kind of finish up with one last question. Like me, you're an entrepreneur, and I've been a huge advocate of of having something of your own because, well, gee, I'm not going to fire myself, and you probably won't either. So how has... <laughs> Uh, working from home and having something of your own been part of your prepping lifestyle? Oh, being able to have my own blog and, and actually be able to make money at it has been a huge part of my prepping lifestyle. It's enabled me to be here when the kids get home from school and to have all that time to talk to them and to be there for them. It's allowed me to do a lot of the projects that I do. I, I have plenty of time. I've got to schedule it, but I have time to, to do my gardening, to do things, and then I can write at night. I can arrange my entire schedule around getting what I need to get done for the day for work and for um, for my prepping, any of the projects, um, any of the actual activity things I need to do. It's also great because um, there's so much of an overlap between prepping and frugal living that I can uh, usually take a lot of the things that I'm doing anyway and turn them into a blog post. So, you know, I'm starting seeds, write a blog post. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm doing a project. You know, I got a, my mom gave me a solar oven for Christmas, which I haven't had a chance to use yet. But when I get it out there and start using it, I'll I'll write a blog post. I'll be able to take pictures and and write a post. I'm also able to do some things like contact um, publishing companies and request books in order to review. I can build my prepping library by doing that. And it's also given me an opportunity to interact with a lot of people and and gain a lot of extra knowledge um, through blogging and the the community that I've built online. Um, So I think that it's, it's been a huge benefit to be able to be so flexible 
and to be able to um, still earn money at the same time for my family. I mean, it's not a, it, it's a very good part-time income, we'll put it that way, that I make from, from my blogging. And if I really uh, wanted to put even more time into it, I could probably do more, but I still want time for all those uh, homesteading kind of activities for my little village homestead. It's interesting how you can work things that you're going to do anyway into it. I remember one of the first things I ever did online that was you know, kind of for profit and never really made me any money was I created a little side about wine so I could review wine. Well, I made wine into a tax deduction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and a lot of the things that I eventually did that were a lot bigger and a lot more profitable started with things like that. And that's why I try to tell people, get started with something. You don't know where it's going to lead you to. Oh, mine was not. I mean, I was blogging. I started blogging on um, January 1st, 2006. So I didn't make a cent at it for about three years, but I wasn't trying to. It was something I was doing because I was home with two small children and I was going to lose my mind. <laughs> So it was a way to interact and to do something and to use my brain and to share um, what I was doing with frugal living and all that. And about the time my son got ready to start kindergarten, I was going to be both of them off to school. I sat down with my husband. I said, OK, so what should we do? Should I go out and get a, uh, a job full time or, you know, should I try to see if this, I can make some money at this blogging thing? And, and he said, honey, if it'll make you happy, I want you to go ahead and try the blogging thing. So, smart man. Yeah, he is a pretty smart. Guy. He's pretty awesome. But uh, so you know, and it's it's taken a long time. I've had some lucky breaks. Um, whether it's luck or whether you make your own luck, I don't know. You know, I, I read something once that said that uh, that the people who feel that they're lucky tend to be happier, and whether that's because they really are lucky or because they always tend to look at the positive and the good things that happen and consider that luck. I don't know, but I, my personal luck, but feeling hard. is lucky people are people who always look at every situation with what are my options? Because mm -hmm. if we ask that question, we almost always find a good one. There's a few situations you can end up in life in, such as, oh, I don't know, guilty of murder and being in a courtroom <laughs> and about to be sentenced, where there isn't really a good answer to that. But I would say that 99 times out of 100, no matter how bad you think a situation is, when you ask yourself, what are my options? There's a few of them that are probably pretty good and might lead to better things. Yeah, and it does. It, it, it gives you a positive outlook. And I just, I love blogging. I love what I've been able to do. I love, I mean, you know, I get people who tell me, and, and this is another part, like I keep throwing subversive out there, but, you know, people come to my blog for a variety of reasons. They come through Pinterest now because they saw a pretty picture. They come because they're looking for frugal living stuff. They come because they're Googling a term and, and they, I have a tutorial or a recipe that they're looking for and they hang around. And, and I've had people tell me that my blog is the reason that they began canning, that they started gardening, that they started meal planning, that now they pack up on Facebook almost every day of the school year. I, I post a picture of what I'm sending in for my kids lunch, you know, and believe it or not, people love that stuff because it gives them ideas. You know, well, no, it's like it's not weird to do that. Gee, somebody else does it. Maybe I'll do it, too. And, and there's a lot of that, you know, I think that's changing as people see through the Internet what others are doing, because life is far less compartmentalized as far as um, is one person knowing what another person is doing in Texas versus New York. Now, um, we have a bridge that's stretches around the world globally, and I think that is having a major social dynamic. I'm not trying to play on social media either. I'm just saying that when you know what other people think and do, it kind of changes the way you think about them and yourself. 
Well, and it makes it seem accessible. You know, when you see Martha Stewart canning, you go, yeah, and she's got a staff of like 30 people, and they clean up every drip. She probably doesn't point. know how to even can. She's just, <laughs> I mean, she's somebody wrote the there. script, and somebody did all the work. Yeah, but you when, know, or when, you see the guy on the HGTV planting a tree, and you know that like five Hispanic dudes dug that hole. He put that <laughs> shovel in the ground one time, and he they put a little dab on his head so he looked like he was sweating. And yeah, then then the then the real workers came in, did the work, and then he shoves the tree in the ground, shovels a couple layers back on it, and then you know the the real workers come in and finish it off. Exactly, and but you you go to somebody's blog. And they say, this is what I did, and here's where I had a hard time, and make sure you watch out for this because I kind of screwed it up. Yeah. You don't want to make that mistake or, or whatever it is. I think it, it makes this like, oh. This didn't work at all. Never do this. <laughs> I mean, that's, then you know you're dealing with genuine people, you yeah. know. And you're learning from somebody else's experience. And really, you know, back to that how women interact thing. That's what women do anyway. You know, when a man wants to buy a new refrigerator, he goes and looks up in like, you know, uh, consumer reports and starts researching. A woman toes to her friends, hey, has anybody bought a new refrigerator lately? What did you think of it? What did you like? They want the opinion of people they trust. Now, maybe it's not the best person to get an opinion from, but that's what people do. Yeah. And so even though I'm just a blog out there, you know, people feel that, that that's an opinion of somebody they trust. It's a real person. And I think I get readers who are just there briefly. You know, they come in because they came in on a Google search. I get a huge amount of my traffic from Google searches, you know, people were searching for something and then they found it and maybe they don't come back. Maybe they do. Uh, but I have a loyal following of people who come back and who I've built a relationship, a, a trust level with that trust that when I tell them something that it's truly my experience or truly what I think, you know, I'm not going to promise that I'm always a hundred percent, you know, right about everything, but I'm, I'm giving them an honest opinion. I, I and, could be wrong, but I've given you my honest view at this point with all the details that I have. And, so and it, I, I'm a detail person. So, absolutely. you know, when I get in there, if I'm writing about something, I will include as many sources as I can so people can check for themselves because I want them to. Um, oh, it absolutely. Was actually, it was interesting because I don't really do straight up prepper posts on my blog. And that's, I think, one of the strengths of my being able to talk to people about prepping topics is they don't know it's a prepping topic. You know, I can I can slide it in there and get their attention with it um, otherwise. But I wrote about the droughts um, last fall, and I was writing about the droughts and the possibility of food increases, um, price increasing, and, and all of the issues, and I wrote a very long article on it. And I think a lot of people on both Facebook and on my blog who normally don't read that kind of stuff read it, and, and they shared it and things like that because I think since they already trusted me on other issues – I sure. brought up something that maybe was outside their normal realm, and they were willing to trust me on it. I think that makes perfect sense, and it's a topic that's widely accepted, frugality, uh, and, and plenty of people talk about it that have no prepping agenda, so it just kind of slides right in there, more, more subversive uh, activity. Mm -hmm. um, last thing for you here, tell people how they can find your blog, and you're actually a podcaster as well, right? Well, my podcast is old. I've got some great episodes okay. out there, but I haven't done that as much recently. Um, my blog is called Frugal Upstate, Upstate being Upstate New York, and that's what I'm known as mostly all over the web. So you can go to www.frugalupstate.com. Uh, my Facebook page is facebook.com slash frugalupstate. I've got a YouTube channel of the same, Frugal Upstate. Um, and on Pinterest, you can find me and Twitter under my name, which is Jen Fowler. So I hope people will come on by and see. I'm also um, part of a very exciting new blogger network called the Homestead Bloggers Network, homesteadbloggersnetwork.com. 
and um, we're doing a lot. They're doing a lot of blogs aggregated over there that have some great posts on all sorts of homestead topics people might be interested in. And uh, hopefully soon, I'm also in talks right now with uh, to write one of the new untrained housewife guides on preserving and canning. So awesome! Got a lot of fun stuff coming up. Awesome stuff. Well, well, Jen, I'll make sure that I uh, provide the links to all of that stuff in the show notes for today's show, and I appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking, and I look forward to listening to more shows in the future. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Jen Fowler, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Shut is